invite you to stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 21 through 4, 7, 8, 12 through 17. Then the Lord spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not cover your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Chris, and I serve as a lead pastor here. Uh, again, thank you for your ongoing prayers. This fancy little boot, I asked if they had it in red and it could make me fly like Iron Man, but apparently they don't have that for people like me. Um, the good news is, is that it was only a torn calf muscle. So my Achilles is fine, which means no surgery, just have to walk around in this thing for a couple weeks, do some physical therapy, and a, yeah, hey, thank you. <laughs> and uh, hopefully in about six weeks, I will be back to trying to play basketball with seventh and eighth graders and trying not to hurt myself. So <laughs> uh, let me just add a, a couple things by way of welcome. Uh, first, uh, Advent, Advent really has become a special time of the year for First City. Uh, this is something that we have leaned into, in particular the past six or seven years, and it's, we've grown to, to really cherish this time of year as a church. And each year, uh, we sit down as elders, we sit down as staff, and think through, what can we do this year uh, to, to bless you all, to, to engage this well as a church, to really uh, lean into all that the Lord has for us in this season? And so we're always asking questions related to how can we tweak a resource or how can we do a particular thing better? And so this year, sort of the fruit of that is one, as Steve pointed out, a simplified, a condensed Advent resource that we hope you'll be blessed with, whether that's personal devotional time or time with your family, uh, in particular with your, with your kids. Also, with our Advent prayer gatherings, if, if you've been around First City for the past few years and you've attended, what these typically have been is a time, a brief time of worship. Uh, a member of our church will give up and get, get up and give a, a brief Advent uh, reflection for 10 minutes or so, and then we would break into smaller groups and, and just pray, spend some time praying. And those were great times. Those were a really times the Lord used and blessed. But this year, we, we thought we'd try something a little bit different. Uh, so this year, our, our prayer gatherings are going to have more, much more of a corporate engagement, so we're going to spend more time singing uh, someone will come up, a couple people will come up and, and lead us in prayer corporately, much like we do, which, like what Steve just did for us on a Sunday morning. Uh, we'll have people read passages of scripture. So the engagement is going to be much more corporate, and we hope that that in many ways creates much more of a reflective feel, uh, a time of worship, of, of even silence, of, of receiving and hearing God's word, uh, praying together uh, as, a, as one body. Uh, so we're, we're changing things up a little bit 
in order to, to kind of capture the sense and the spirit of this time of year. And so I want to invite you to come. Uh, it'll take the, the service will last no more than an hour. Uh, as we are engaging this time of uh, hustle that, that Christmas time can be, I know you have lots of parties, you have lots of uh, good things that you're going to be involved in, shopping, uh, family, uh, Christmas uh, activities and, and concerts and events. There's going to be a lot on your calendar. So we want this one hour on a Sunday night, not just to be something that you add to your calendar and rush to and rush back from, but to be a time where we come and actually slow down, be before the Lord, be before his word, spend some time worshiping and praising him, spend some time together praying and crying out to God to move. And in that, it'll steady our souls a bit, slow us down a bit, get us in touch with that sense of longing and anticipation that we want Christ to return that he's coming back, and we have hope in that. So I want to invite you to come. It'll be an hour well spent these next three Sunday nights. Well, if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, please do so. Uh, We are in Exodus 20. We're going to be focusing on verse 17. And the title of my message this morning, uh, with a little hat tip to the Rolling Stones, is this. You can't always get what you want. Those of you that grew up in the 60s, you're singing along right now with Mick Jagger. Well, if you were to meet my mom and ask her to tell you a funny or embarrassing story about Pastor Chris and his childhood, there's a good chance that she would tell you about an epic meltdown I had in the toy aisle of Target when I was five. See, I wanted her to buy me an Optimus Prime Transformer toy, and she said no. (laughs) And so... As most five-year-olds do, I thought I would try to reason with my mom. I would try to bring all of my brilliance to try to convince her to buy this toy with me, for me. And so all the brilliance that I could muster that involved me yelling and screaming and flopping on the floor, making demands. Parents, are you aware of such brilliance? Have you experienced such brilliance from your kids? <laughs> kids, have you ever tried such brilliance with your parents? No, never. (laughs) I'm glad. Good for you. Good for you. (laughs) Now, on the face of it, there was nothing wrong with a five-year-old boy wanting an Optimus Prime transforming. Optimus Prime's a hero. You should have toys that reflect good, heroic morals. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. Pretty normal and even good desire. However, that desire of mine was exposed as being something more than good. In fact, that desire was downright sinful. My desire had become so strong, it had so overtaken me, that when I was told no, I got angry and I got disobedient. When I did not get what I wanted, I sinned. Or to put it another way, I was willing to sin to get what I wanted. So simply put, I coveted that toy. I coveted that toy. Now, we can all laugh, and we we definitely get a lot of laughs at at my family around my immaturity when I was five. But I wonder, how often do we behave just like five-year-old Chris? Adults. Well, we may not melt down in the middle of a store, but how often is that more because as adults now, we can actually just satisfy that desire? We can give in to our coveting and just satisfy that desire. 
Or if we don't, we may not throw a fit publicly, but internally we're that little kid on the floor pounding the ground demanding that we get what we want. Maybe playing it cool on the outside, but five-year-old immaturity on the inside. So the question is, what do you desire so strongly? What do you want so much that you will become angry and irritated when you don't get it? What do you desire so strongly that you would be willing to sin to get it? Simply put, what do you covet? So we, we've come to the final of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The, the, the Tenth Commandment here warns us against coveting, which is sinfully desiring something that does not belong to us or something that we, we can never have, like our neighbor's wife or our neighbor's house or possessions, or something that we potentially could have but don't currently have. Now, let, let's be clear at the, at the front here, at the beginning here, that desiring in and of itself is not a bad thing. Like, we were created to desire. If we did not desire, we would not be motivated to do anything. We're not Buddhists. We're Christians. The Bible teaches that we should desire good things. It is good to desire a spouse and kids and friends and health and a good job and a house and financial blessing and success in what we do. It's good to desire those things. So the issue isn't that we desire. The issue is how we desire. What gives shape to our desires? Are our desires good and in order and in alignment with God's word, or are they selfish? Are they self-defined? Are they disordered and out of alignment with God's word? And then how are those desires shaping you? What kind of person are your desires making you? How are they affecting your relationships? How are they affecting your spiritual health? And then what do you do when your desires aren't met? What do you do with unmet expectations and disappointments? You see, you can't always get what you want. And when you don't get what you want, what happens? What do you do? And so these are some of the questions that the Ten Commandment is going to confront us with this morning. And ultimately, it's going to drive us to this particular truth, to do not be consumed by covetousness, but to be content through Christ. So we're going to reflect on this morning what it means to not be consumed by covetousness, but to be content through Christ. Now, those of you that are more familiar with the Ten Commandments, do you notice how the Tenth Commandment is a bit different from the rest of the commandments? You see, up to this point, each of the commandments has focused on a specific behavior or activity that, that, that you're not to do. There's a prohibition against some specific activity. We're not to worship other gods or we're not to make images. We're not to take the Lord's name in vain. We're to keep the Sabbath. We're to honor parents. We're not to murder. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to steal. We're not to lie. Like Those are very specific, concrete actions. But then when we come to the Ten Commandment, we get in a heart posture. We don't, don't desire, don't long after your neighbor's spouse or your neighbor's house or your neighbor's possessions. There's no real concrete action. It's more hitting at the heart. And so why, after focusing on specific actions, does the Ten Commandments end with a focus on the heart? Well, there's a good reason for this. 
And for us to see that reason, we have to go back once again. Anybody guess where we're going? Genesis. Awesome. You guys have been paying attention. <laughs> back to Genesis chapter 3. And this is a passage we, we briefly looked at last week in the temptation of Eve. And so the serpent comes to Eve to tempt her. And after twisting God's word and, and getting Eve to doubt God's goodness, here, here's what we read in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And so there's, again, there's, there's much we could say about this passage, but let me, let me highlight a couple things here. One, notice how good things get twisted. See, the tree was good for food, it was beautiful, and was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Food, beauty, wisdom, like those are all good things that you should desire. And have you ever wondered why God didn't make the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like ugly and dark and look like rotten fruit and almost poisonous? Like, why didn't he make it, un- why didn't he make it unattractive? There's no way Eve could have temp- or Satan could have tempted Eve if that tree was not attractive. Why does God make the tree beautiful? Because the tree itself wasn't bad. The tree itself was part of creation. It was good. It was part of God's creation. It was beautiful and good for food. There was nothing bad about the tree. See, the tree stood as a symbol and a reminder of where wisdom is found in what God commands and what he prohibits. Through the tree, Adam and Eve knew wisdom. They knew what was good and what was evil, for they knew God's word. They knew that wisdom was found in God's word. See, their knowledge of good and evil up to that point came from God, was dependent on God. And as long as their desire for wisdom and knowledge was shaped by and submitted to God and his word, as long as they pursued wisdom dependent upon God and in the ways God called them to, they were good. They were fine. Everything was as it should have been. The problem wasn't the tree. The problem wasn't the thing desired. The problem was the nature of the desire. The problem became when that desire got twisted, when the desire was no longer God-centered but became self-centered. And this is what happened. Unfortunately, Eve's desire gets twisted. In tempting Eve, the serpent says back in verse 5, so a verse before, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan is essentially saying this, Eve, if you eat of the tree, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. This tree, it brings a God-like wisdom. And what's implied here, you determine good and evil for yourself, you no longer need God. You get to be like God. You get to define good and evil on your own. You get to know this independent. You don't need God anymore if you eat this tree. And it is this desire for God-like wisdom, wisdom independent of God, that leads Eve to eat the tree. You see, the word desirable in Genesis 3.6, in the Hebrew, this is the exact same word used in the 10th commandment. The exact same word, the exact same idea. Eve coveted this wisdom. Eve coveted this position. Her desire was no longer shaped by and submitted to the Lord, It was shaped by a desire to be independent of God. And then her coveting led to a concrete action, which is what? Eat of the tree, disobey the Lord. And so do you see why the Ten Commandments end with this prohibition against coveting? 
See, the 10th commandment is a call back to Genesis 3, 6 and a warning against illicit desire as the very root of sin. The 10th commandment, the cap of the 10 commandments, takes us back to the beginning and points us at what caused that original sin. What caused Eve to turn from God and eat of that tree? The 10th commandment takes us to the root, the source of sin, desiring something else more than desiring the Lord and being obedient to him. And this is also why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, 5, he calls coveting idolatry. To covet is to essentially worship a false god, to desire something so strongly that it becomes what is most important to you. You will do anything to satisfy that desire, anything to serve that desire. And that is the definition of a god. What you will most give your time and energy and life to. What most has your affections, what most has your desires, what, what will most shape what you do and how you live your life, that is your god. The thing you give everything you can to serve, what's most important to you is your God. And when we covet, we make something other than God, God. And this is where the domino starts. This is where the effects begin. The effects of coveting become so devastating. The illicit desire of coveting, it's never isolated. It's never about just one thing. It's like a pushing one domino and there's this great effect. Multiple dominoes will fall. There is this chain reaction that takes place. And scripture plays this out for us in multiple places. To just give you two pretty significant examples. You don't need to turn there, but in 2 Samuel 11, we read of King David. And in this account of King David, we see that he desired after, he coveted after Bathsheba, a married woman. And so in that covetousness for her, what ends up happening? Well, first he breaks the 10th commandment, but then that leads him to sleeping with a married woman, which is breaking the 7th commandment. Then when he finds out she's pregnant, he tries to cover it up, which is sort of breaking the 9th commandment. And then when he can't cover it up, he has her husband killed, which is breaking the 6th commandment. See where covetousness leads David? Then we find another example in 1 Kings 21. There was a man named Navoth who had a vineyard right next to the palace of King Ahab. And King Ahab wanted this vineyard. He wanted this vineyard for himself so that he could grow a vegetable garden. So he goes and he meets with Navoth and he says, hey, can I buy your vineyard from you? And Navoth is like, no, I can't sell. This is, this is land that I have inherited. I cannot sell this to you. This was for, for the Israelites. They were not to sell land that they inherited. They were to keep it. And so he says, no, politely refuses. And if you read in 1 Kings 21, Ahab's reaction is pathetic and hilarious. It says that he, he gets resentful and angry and then he goes into his bedroom and he, he lays down in his bed and he turns his face away. It's like this idea, have you ever been mad and you fall on your bed and you like turn your face away and you don't want to look at anybody and you just want to hide away? Like that's what this king was doing, the powerful king who had all the wealth and riches in the land, had powerful armies, and here he is throwing a temper tantrum because someone wouldn't sell him a vineyard. And then it says he also wouldn't eat. He, he is, he is all, all out of sorts, all put out. He is throwing a world-class temper tantrum because Navoth would not sell him his vineyard. So then Ahab's famous wife Jezebel comes in and asks, what is your problem? And Ahab's basically like, oh, Navoth won't sell me his vineyard. <laughs> it's pathetic. It's hilarious. If it didn't lead to such a dark place, Jezebel says, hey, man up, be a king, and I'll get you that vineyard. So here's what she does. 
she frames Navoth for blasphemy. So she commits, or she breaks the ninth commandment. Then she has, and then because of that framing, Navoth is unjustly executed, which is breaking the sixth commandment. And then Ahab is able to take the vineyard, which is breaking the eighth commandment. See, that covetousness doesn't just stop at coveting. Chain reaction, a devastating chain reaction, a destructive chain reaction. And this is what happens to you and I when we, give our, when we are consumed by covetousness. When we are consumed, it leads to breaking other commandments. There's a domino effect, there's a chain reaction, there's a ripple effect that begins to compound sin more and more and more in our lives. When we are consumed by coveting, it will always spill over and we will become guilty of more than just breaking the 10th commandment. So are you consumed with covetousness? Like when you look at what others have, when you look at their spouse or you look at their kids or you look at maybe their physical body or you look at their house or their job or their education or their position in the church, when you look at the things that they have, do you go, I want that? Like I want your spouse. Like I want your job. Man, I wish I had your kids instead of my kids. I wish I had your wealth. I wish I had your position in the church. Do you ever look at someone else and covet their things, their stuff, their station in life? You can't always get what you want. So what do you do with that sinful desire? What do you do when that covetousness springs up in your heart? Now, perhaps it's not specifically another person's spouse or, or a house or a job that you want. Maybe it's just a spouse. Maybe it's just kids. Maybe it's just a job or a house. Maybe it's not you're looking at someone else's and wanting their specific thing, but it's just, I have a desire for something and that hasn't been met yet. A good desire that hasn't been met yet. Not bad things, but you can't always get what you want. So how do you respond to those unmet desires, those unmet hopes, and friends, this is what is so hard. This is what is difficult about covetousness because it gets mixed in with good desires. It gets mixed in with the pain of unmet expectations. Like it's good to want to get married. It's good to want to have kids. It's good to work hard. It's good to have ambition and want to excel in life. We should be giving ourselves to these things. But sometimes those good desires aren't met and fulfilled as we'd like. And it's hard, right? Like, really hard. But can I be honest with you guys? Maybe, maybe one of the most vulnerable things that I've ever said from the pulpit. Like, it is really hard being a part of this church and not having kids. And I don't say that because I want you to feel sorry for Mindy and I. I don't say this because I want you to fix anything. I'm just, I'm just being honest. It is really hard. It is, it is probably, no, not probably, it is. I can say this with confidence. It is the hardest thing about being a pastor in this church. And so I say that, again, not looking for you to feel sorry for us or try to run and fix something. I'm just saying, like, if you're in the room and you're struggling with unmet desires and expectations and the pain of that, look, I get it. I get it. I don't say any of this flippantly. It is hard. It's hard to know, hey, when is that desire good and when has it become twisted? It's hard always to know, what do I do with this, Lord? How am I to respond to this? 
it's hard. I get the temptation. <laughs> I get the temptation. But here's what we have to do. Here's what we have to be honest about. That pain cannot be an excuse to punt on the 10th commandment. It can't. We still have to face down these difficult realities. Because here's the other challenge, not just the challenge of our own hearts, but there's a challenge because our culture is so awash in covetousness. Like our culture says, get what you want when you want it. Deny yourself nothing as long as the other person consents. You should be able to get whatever you want when you want it. Go out and do that. Be motivated by that. In some ways, our economy is driven by a covetousness. But then on top of that, if you've experienced disappointment or hardship or even trauma, that can be like a get-out-of-jail-free card for our desires. Like the more pain you have experienced, the more right you have to what you desire. Like our culture will give you this green light. You've been hurt. Well, then just go get what you want. Go do what you want. Other people, we, we may have to hold you back, but you, you go get what you want. And so when our hearts, in the midst of the pain and the, and the frustration and the sadness and the disappointment, latches on to those messages of the culture and then our sin gets mixed in, we will justify our covetousness. We will baptize our covetousness. We will begin to believe, no, I deserve this. I have every right to chase after that. And our culture will feed it all the more. And for you who are in pain, the culture woos you even more. But where does this leave us? Where does this path leave us? I can tell you it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to joy. It doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to ultimate satisfaction. I mean, have you ever met somebody who got whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, at whatever cost, did whatever they could to get what they wanted, have you ever met a person like that and go, that's a good person? That's a person I want to be like? That's a happy person, a fulfilled person, a righteous person? No. Have you ever read a story where a character got everything they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted, and you thought, man, what a hero. What an inspiring character. No. Those are not the characters that we're drawn to. Those are not the type of people that we want to be like. You know, chasing after every desire by any means necessary, that only really leads to more pain, more damage, more selfishness, more angst, more dissatisfaction. Being given over to covetousness, like that hollows out our souls. It makes us shallow and self-centered people. And even worse, it deepens our rebellion against God. Covetousness is damaging. It is destructive. You can't always get what you want. You don't always get what you want. So what are you doing with the unmet desires? What are you doing with the dissatisfaction in life? The pain and the disappointment? We need to be honest. We need a heavy dose of honesty. And so consider, what are the unmet desires that are making you angry and angsty? What are the unmet desires that are causing you to see God as not good and faithful? What unmet desires cause you to wrestle and question whether God has forgotten about you or even loves you and cares about you? What, what unmet desires consume your thoughts and emotional energy 
What things do you obsess over and plan and worry and angst over because you're trying to come up with a way to satisfy and meet that desire? Have you broken other commandments in pursuit of this desire? In what ways have you lied? What ways have you stolen? What ways have you given over the sexual immorality? What ways have you committed idolatry and put something else above God and chased after something else above God? How have you broken other commandments because you're so consumed with covetousness? Or how about this? Has your covetousness led you to envy? Meaning, not only do you wish you had something that someone else has, but you hate them because they have it. Or you dislike them because they have it. You can't enjoy their joy, their rejoicing, their wins. When someone's honored in the church, you, something inside you grumbles and complains because you want that honor and you don't like them because they got it. No one's paying attention to you. How often do you pull away from relationships? How often do you create conflicts between people because of there's a covetousness, there's an envy in your life? How often does covetousness keep you from loving other people and serving other people? And that can go in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, in the church. Has envy got a hold of your heart? What are you doing with your unmet desires? How is coveting affecting you? How is it affecting your marriage? How is it affecting your parenting? How is it affecting your work? How is it affecting your finances? your relationships with brothers and sisters, your relationships with your neighbors, your relationships with your coworkers? How is it affecting your faith and obedience to the Lord? Friends, covetousness is not a path to life. Being consumed by covetousness is damaging and destructive. And if it's been your story, if you're feeling the scars, you're feeling the pain, if you're in a place right now where, where you can sort of look back and you go, man, I didn't necessarily put the pieces together, but I look at all these, these things that I have done and I see it's all traced back because I wanted this thing for myself and I elevated this thing to God and now I have done all of these damaging, damaging destructive things and I kind of find myself in that place. Like if that's where you are, if that's where you've been, or if that is where you are headed, and God's word through the 10th commandment comes as a warning comes as this big flashing red light to say stop, to turn from that covetousness. But it also, in warning us, points us away from it and points us to something better. The 10th commandment says, do not covet. And it also says, covetousness not need be your story. Not need be the trajectory of your life. Oh, you, there's something better for you. Do not be consumed by covetousness, but be content through Christ. Through Christ, we can experience something greater than covetousness, contentment, contentment. You know, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Like, I had this written on my baseball glove. I had this written on my cleats. Like, like this was, a, you know, if you're an athlete and you're a Christian, you know about this verse. Maybe you have taken on challenges like running a marathon or climbing a mountain or passing a big test or a class. Maybe this verse has inspired you in some ways. And in many ways, this has a broad application. There's nothing wrong with that. But in context, do you know what the Apostle Paul is directly talking about in this verse? He's talking about something far more difficult than scoring a touchdown or running a marathon or climbing a mountain or passing a test. 
He's talking about the incredibly difficult challenge of being content. Here's what he writes in verses 4, this is Philippians 4, 11 through 13, so the entire context. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So whether I have a little or I have a lot, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I have an abundance of possessions or whether I'm needy, Paul says, I've learned to be content. Now, what does it mean to be content? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What, what does it actually mean to be content? I think we can, we can often view contentment as this, is this sense of like, hey, I'm just perfectly happy with where I am, so, so I don't need to care really much more about anything. Don't need to care more one way or another. Don't need to try any harder than I already am. I'm just sort of fine maintaining the status quo. The status quo is good. I'm good. I'm content. And there may be a sense in which contentment shows itself that way, but that's not what contentment truly is. You see, contentment at its heart is about trust. It's about trust, and as we've talked about this morning, it's about hope. Trust that the Lord is good, and he's given me what I need and will give me what I need. It's trust that if things don't go the way I had hoped or planned, I still have hope because I believe the Lord is at work in my life, that I will be okay, that even if things don't work out, I can still be faithful and obedient. I can still give myself to those things that are good, trusting the Lord. You see, contentment is trust that what the Lord has given me right now is sufficient for my good, sufficient for my obedience, sufficient for my joy. Contentment is trust that the Lord loves me, is for me, and he is working all things for my good. See, at its heart, contentment is trust. And in that trust, it leads to faith and obedience and submission to the Lord. And so friends, can we acknowledge this is not easy? <laughs> Why is contentment not easy? Because trust is not easy. We struggle to trust the Lord. We struggle to depend upon the Lord. Paul even says, I learned to be content. He had to learn. The Apostle Paul, of all people, had to learn to be content. Why? Because this isn't natural for us. It's not natural. Our natural inclination is to focus on what we don't have and obsess over it. Our natural inclination is to grab for control. Our natural inclination is to build our lives on a, found, a foundation of fulfilled desires and a security of our own making. We think status, wealth, possessions are great gain, but 1 Timothy 6.6 6 tells us godliness with contentment is great gain. And so to learn contentment, it's entirely counterintuitive. It isn't natural. It goes against our natural drift. It goes against the sinfulness in our hearts. That is why we need a power outside ourselves to be content. How did Paul learn contentment? Through him who gave him strength. The contentment didn't come in circumstances. The contentment came through a person, Jesus Christ. He learned contentment through Christ. He learned to be content through Christ. It is only through Christ that we are going to be truly content. Content in a way that honors the Lord. Content in a way that worships the Lord. Content in a way that fulfills the 10th commandment. And so if we're going to be content... 
we need to be transformed. We need to be changed. We cannot do this in and of ourselves because in and of ourselves, we are slaves to our desires. We're slaves to our fear. We're slaves to our lack of trust. We need to be set free from our sinful desires. We need to have something bigger to live for than just our own wants and desires. We need to have the desires that God has given us be shaped by his word and his glory. And this, friends, is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that while you and I were wrecking and ruining our lives because of our covetousness, God in his grace and his mercy sent Jesus to, for us. He sent Jesus Christ into this world. And what did Jesus do? Jesus died on a cross for us. He took our sin, our covetousness, the punishment that you and I deserved because we broke not just the 10th commandment, but one through 10. Jesus took that punishment that we deserved on himself and he was struck down and he was killed for our sake. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again in victory over every sin and every evil power and over death itself. And in that victory, Christ has brought salvation for those who will turn from their sin and turn to him. If you are here this morning and you have been beaten up and wrecked and ruined by your covetousness, know that through Jesus Christ you can be forgiven, you can be set free, and you can be made new. The good news of the gospel is that Christ offers you hope, he offers you healing, he offers you cleansing, and he offers you a new power to live in a different way. And it's through the gospel, the power of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, that we learn to be content. Because when we look to Christ, when we see Christ, when we see that God has spared no expense to save us, when we see that God has lavished every spiritual blessing on us in Christ, as Ephesians tells us, then we can see that God loves us. We can see that God is for us. And we can see that God is with us, that Christ is with us. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money, which is a form of covetousness. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. What is the author of Hebrews root this call to not be covetous in the fact that Christ is with you, that he will never leave you, never forsake you. Whether you are in abundance or whether you are in need, Christ is with you. Whether you have plenty of possessions, whether you are putting paycheck to paycheck together, Christ is with you and he's not left you. Whether your belly is full or whether your belly is screaming at you because you're hungry, Christ is with you and Christ is for you. Now listen, I understand circumstances can cause us to, to see all kinds of things unclearly. This is why we need God's word. This is why we need to look to Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ and not our circumstances. That is the reality that colors everything else. That is the reality that shapes everything else. That is how we learn to be content, is when we fix our eyes on Christ and the blessing. And through Christ, here's what we begin to learn. If I am in abundance... I can rejoice in the Lord's blessings and I can be faithful with what he has given me. I don't need to fight and strive to hold on to it. Rather, I can use it to bless others. I can use what the Lord has given me and I can be a faithful steward. I can be faithful in my marriage and in my parenting and in my job. I can be faithful in the relationships and with the possessions that God has given me because my identity, my life, my security isn't dependent upon them. I trust the Lord. I put my hope in him because as some of you know, that abundance can disappear. That abundance can go away. So it's not the abundance in which we are content. It is Christ in which we are content. So we learn this. Also, if I am going without, I trust the Lord to provide. I trust the Lord is with me and working for my good. 
that even in the things I lack, he's faithful and he's good and I'll continue to be obedient. Rather than judging the Lord's motives towards me, rather than seeing him as not good or not faithful, I know he's faithful, I trust he is faithful. So even in my lack, even in those unmet expectations and desires, I walk in trust, I walk in obedience, I walk in faith. I'll work hard to pursue good things, and if they come, great. But if they don't come as I want or in the timetable that I want, yet I'm going to trust him. I'm going to cling to him. I'm going to draw near to him. I'm going to experience more comfort from him. In my lack, I'm going to experience the depth of intimacy with the Lord. That's what we learn when we learn contentment through Christ. And here's the beautiful fruit of that, friends. We stop trying to build an identity by striving to get we, we stop using other people to get. We stop envying and hating other people for what they have. Rather, we rejoice in their good. We celebrate when they have a win. We can rejoice when someone in the church is honored because we go, that is God's grace in their life. Praise God. You can rejoice when people at your work are elevated because of a good, of good job and hard work. You can rejoice when that friend of yours gets married or that friend of yours has kids. You can rejoice in all of those good things because you see them as God's blessing on their life and your contentment ultimately is in Christ. Your trust and your hope are ultimately in Christ. And so it frees you to love. It frees you from envy and hatred and anger. It frees you from animosity. It frees you from trying to do whatever you can to get what you want. Like if you've lived that life, you know. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. The gospel sets you free. Here's, what, here's another thing too. It allows you to be thankful for what you do have and it allows you to see what you do have as more than enough. Like how many of us operate with sort of this scarcity mindset that if I don't have this much in the bank or if I don't have this kind of relationship or if I don't have this blessing in my life, then, then I'm less than or I actually can't be faithful or I can't give myself to the Lord or give myself to other people. No, when you're content in Christ, even when you lack, you can give yourself. You can serve. You can know that God is at work in you and through you. There's blessing in that. And here's what else. Contentment in Christ allows you to actually mourn, to grieve, to feel that sadness of unmet expectations. And that sadness, that mourning, it's blessed by God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, Jesus said. How many of us don't mourn because we're spending so much time in covetousness and anger and we don't experience the comfort of the Lord? And so when we are content in Christ, we can actually experience the deep comfort of God in our hearts and that will strengthen us. That will bring us joy even in the midst of the pain. So friends, being consumed by covetousness, it's a dead end. It's a painful dead end. But being content through Christ, that is a path to life. It doesn't make life easier per se, but it does make life better. It makes it more joyful, makes it more peaceful, it makes it more hopeful, it gives life meaning and purpose. It allows you to love and serve others. It creates a culture and a church of love and celebration and joy. It does so much good when we are content through Christ. And so church, as we have seen in all of these commandments, there is great promise, there is great hope, there is great beauty when we are faithful to the Ten Commandments. And it all starts right here with our desires. 
that we would desire God above everything else and that all the good things that he would give us, we would desire them appropriately. We would desire them as gifts from him. We would desire them shaped by his word. And so let us be a community that is not consumed by covetousness, but is content through Christ. Amen? Let's pray.